Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Shaded Youth. As usual, we have another special guest on for today. We have the one and only Mamadou Tal, if that's how you pronounce it. Let me know if I'm wrong. <laughs> that's correct. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. Tal. Okay. Um, <laughs> all the way from Egypt, um, but based in the UK previously. He is um, big in political activism, but also currently studying the, tra the traditional sciences in Cairo as of right now. So without further ado, Assalamu alaikum, Mamadou. How are you? Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, Shaquille. And it's an honor to be in conversation with you. Alhamdulillah. So just to start off, um, for the viewers who may not know about your work and what you do or, or, or what you're even about, could you just give like a brief summary as to that? <laughs> I always find those questions so difficult to answer. Because like, what do I do? What do I do? Um, okay. To long story short, um, I'm involved with right now trying to provide political education for a lot of people on via Instagram, via social media, um, trying to kind of get people. And, you know, sometimes people talk about, I'm just being objective. I'm having an objective analysis. No, 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 no. I have an agenda. I definitely have an agenda. My agenda is I, I hope people are, and I know this is going to sound a bit, I know there's like, because of due to the securitization of Muslims, the word radical, people are afraid of it, but I'm not. I call myself a black radical and I want people to adopt radical politics. So I try to wake people up, quote unquote, wake people up. I try to point to the conditions that people find themselves in and hopefully draw the links to those conditions. So the links between capitalism and colonialism and imperialism, the links between what we find the police force in America and then what we find in Israel, um, you know, New York, the New York, you said you're, you said you're from New York, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So the New York Police State Department is an international body. It's an, and in, in, in the States, it acts as an occupying domestic force. So again, that's like what I'm doing now. What kind of led me to that is that um, I'm, I'm a Muslim, alhamdulillah. Um, I started practicing, whatever that, however people want to understand that, whatever that means. I started practicing at the age of like 16. And then that I wanted to learn my dean more. So I moved to Cairo at the age of just after university, 21, 22. Um, I learned Arabic. I'm still memorizing Quran. Um, I finished as her preparatory school, like a, like a, a school you go to before you enter like university. And then I did, um, then I studied in Azhar Mosque. I also outside study in a place called Marquez Imam Malik as well. Um, it's funny because I've shifted before I wanted to be a, and a sheikh, but not anymore. And we can talk about that as well. Okay. That sounds amazing. Um, so just to start off from the beginning, because I know you also have a podcast, um, the Malcolm effect, um, which the name in itself has a ton of things to go into. Um, but the very first episode, I remember hearing it, it was basically just about how you grew up pretty much and, and all the influences that got you to where you are. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the, the area of um, England specifically where you, where you were raised and some of the things that happened to mm -hmm. you that kind of shifted your mindset of the world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so raised in a place called Stratford which is well which is East London today and typical I mean I guess I don't know where you're from in the New York but I know uh, you I'm in Brooklyn Brooklyn so yeah okay, you lot have you lot have blocks you lot have mm -hmm. hoods uh you lot have what we call in UK slang the ends so I grew up in the ends or the block so it's, uh, it's like the the project yes okay exactly. okay 
So, you know, grow up, and you know, just the usual patterns of those things follow the same, um, the same kind of socioeconomic uh, leanings as, ever, as everywhere else. So, you know, poor, poor, poor working class family, usually uh, black, and, black, and, black and brown areas. So, so I grew up in that area. Um, I was a very naughty kid. I said it on my podcast. I was a naughty kid. I got, I got, so we call our primary school what you will call, what do you call your school that before you go to high school? Um, so it's, it's three phases. So elementary school, middle school, and then high school. Okay. So we finished our primary school when we're 11 years old. Okay. Um, I got I got kicked out on my last day of primary school. I, got <laughs> I won't tell you why. <laughs> and I got kicked out of um, and I got I got excluded a few times from school. So I'm a very naughty kid. You know, I mentioned in my podcast that I've been arrested a few times and I'm just a very naughty kid. But because I, I put it down to two things. Um, alhamdulillah, and right now I've grown a little bit, but in those days I was quite short. So, you know, when you have short man syndrome. You have to, you, you do the most to kind of make your mark. Mm, you do the overcompensate, most right? Overcompensate, yeah. exactly. So I overcompensated and I was like, I wanted to be the person that had the most status or whatever that, whatever that means. And then when about the age of 13, my mom moved me to Birmingham, um, partly because of the trouble I was getting in. A friend of mine was killed. Um, so my mom's like, yeah, we have to kind of get you out of this. I moved to Birmingham. And then we just start again. And then, you know, haven't got the same support network of friends. I'm a nobody now. Um, I've got to be a bit more humble. Then the age about, then I have a few racist encounters in school. I mean, I was like 15, 16. Um, one that always comes to mind, and I say it a few times, but it's something that's going to be etched in my memory for a long time. Because and I think as well, it's like, at the time it happened, you can't even make the link as to what it will propel you to do in the future. But looking back now, I've got to I got to thank that white boy for being racist to me because now you don't know what you unleash now. <laughs> so I remember um, at the election of Barack Obama, 2008, he was elected. So about 2007, 2008, we had something called the Youth Parliament in the UK. Me being inspired by Obama, unfortunately, but at the time I was, um, I decided to run for youth elections which means you become like a youth uh, equivalent to a youth senator you know it's quite a quite a big role so as I was going to different classes getting votes it's quite it's custom that people in your own school vote for you so okay so I'm going for different classes I'm like hey I'm running for election this is my manifesto um, please vote for me then the kids looked at me and then looked at the sheet because the sheet I've had about maybe had about 20, 25 people on there. And then he said, I'm going to look for the white face to vote for. And I said, mm. so there's, there's me trying to be so diplomatic and intellectual. And I'm, so I said, oh, well, I'm British too. Why would, you vote, why would you vote for the white face when I'm British too? And then he says to me, if a dog is born in a stable, it doesn't make it a horse. <laughs> yeah. so I was like to be fair I think for a 15 year old looking back that's quite an ingenious way of doing racism if I'm honest <laughs> so I was like okay cool and then it got into a bit it got a bit physical and it got yeah it got it turned into a whole mess then about 16 years and then I remember I got really upset no I wasn't upset I got really angry and then it turned to a fight and then my teacher pulled me to the side who teacher I had was very cool with me like we got along really well but he said to me 
Mamadou, you should be more like Martin and less like Malcolm. And I was like, obviously at the time we are taught, I know America is different. You lot, you guys are much more fortunate to have a better understanding of Malcolm and Martin. I, uh, I, I, I'm not so sure about that. Um, just really? be, yeah. So, so uh, sorry to interrupt, but um, bas- basically in, in middle school, like I remember in, and even high school, um, I remember two examples that glare into my head when I, when I think of like Malcolm X or like the Black Panthers. One was in Sanskrit English when um, we were going through history, you know, talking about Martin uh, yeah. Luther and, and um, Black Panthers. And um, she basically positioned the Black Panthers as like the radical group, right? You know, um, violence, you know, the ones that didn't really bring about that much change. It was really Martin who did that because it was nonviolent approach. Um, and then I remember in 11th grade English, <laughs> you know, English teachers, I don't know what it is, but um, she, we were talking about, um, you know, different black historical figures and yeah. uh, Malcolm X was brought up and this was when I was a bit more educated on him. And, and I was like, um, I forget what it was, but um, I pretty much just brought, brought up the fact that, you know, towards the end of Malcolm X's life, he actually had a more of a, um, a balanced approach to, towards, towards race, you know, not really dividing you know black and white people um and that was due to his you know his the hudge and whatnot and she was actually very surprised about that and this is like a teacher and she was like wait really i, I thought he was like you know just violent all around like this is it's wow. so weird yeah wow. yeah this is like a teacher i don't know I was, I was really surprised by that 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 i mean see okay that is the story yeah. in most places in the world and i and let's be honest that that is deliberate they mm. want people to have you know an image of Malcolm and an image of Martin and even the image of Martin in which they paint is not even true I mean Martin mm. was very radical you know right right time. but yeah so my teacher said that to me and then I was like mm, okay and then a year later around this around the same time I fr- my friend at the time he bought bought me the autobiography of Malcolm X the Alex as told to Alex Haley and that was my kind of introduction to Malcolm properly and then I just fell in love and I wanted to be like this man so much. Um, I, you know, incessantly stalked his videos on YouTube, trying to memorize his speeches, trying to be the model of my life on him. And then from that point, it's just been continuous. So it's been, I remember I, I posted a picture the other day, a throwback, and I first read the autobiography 12 years ago. And then from there, it's just been a continuation of that. And, you know, like most historical figures, there's so much more to uncover. Later on, I learned that Malcolm X moves to Egypt. He gets an Ijaz from Azhar, um, which many people are unaware of. He's what, he becomes one of the first people to receive scholarships to send African-Americans to Azhar. Um, you know, I think, I think one thing is, is coming out more and more now, but I think it's a shame it hasn't been done so, uh, so excessively or focused on. We don't focus a lot on Malcolm's internationalism. We don't focus on his uh, links to, you know, South Asia, you don't focus his, on his links to um, Latin America or his links to Africa, because his final year of his life um, was his internationalism. It was him traveling the world. It was him connecting the struggles of Black Americas to people who are oppressed around the world. And then you see that later on by the people he inspires, even though they take different routes, but they continue that international effort. So he, he inspires the, obviously the Black Panthers um, with Fred Hampton, and Fred Hampton, you know, he makes the Rainbow Coalition. 
tries to bring people all together. Then he also inspires Kwame Ture, formerly Stokely Carmichael, who becomes a Pan-Africanist who tries to, um, and he becomes one of the figureheads in condemning um, what happens in Israel and Palestine. So again, you find that, that those people who, Malcolm, who, who continued Malcolm legacy or were inspired by him, they also adopted an internationalist approach. And that's my approach as well. Okay. Um... So the, the autobiography of Malcolm X is, you know, widely read by Muslims, non-Muslims. Um, but in, in particular, I know that a lot of people, when they read the autobiography of Malcolm X, they, um, that's like their first exposure to Islam as well. A lot of people, yes. you know, convert, I believe, Imam Zaid Shakir, who is a prominent imam in America, he yeah. converted after reading that book. Um, was that also like a stepping stone for you and into becoming more practicing or were you already like practicing beforehand? Um, it definitely assisted. No, I wasn't more practicing at the time, okay. but it definitely assisted from what I, if, I, if I can remember correctly. I remember at the time, so when I decided to like embrace Islam, well, well not embrace as in convert, right, yeah. family is Muslim, but to start practicing. And I call it embrace because I wasn't really practicing at all. Like mm-hmm. I didn't, I had to pray properly even. And when I decided to take that step, I was looking into other religions at the time. So I was looking into like Rastafarianism, I was looking into Islam and, and, and Islam made the most sense to me. But then with Malcolm X's autobiography and him attributing so much of his own radical, radical posturing and his commitment to justice came through Islam, it kind of pushed me towards that direction more. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so th- there was a question that I did want to ask um, just because it seems like every group claims Malcolm X, right? It mm-hmm. seems like he, the right wings, com, com, you know, they, they, they claim Malcolm X, even amongst the Muslims. Um, and then the leftists also claim Malcolm X. Um, I know it's very hard, but could you give like um, a, a depiction that's, um, that's most true to exactly who he was? I know you mentioned his internationalism in this last year, but um, just combining, I, I know it's like a hard question, but um, could you- The thing uh, is, depending on who you speak to, yeah. And, and, and what angle they're coming from will determine how you define Malcolm. Okay. Um, and I feel like it just speaks to, you know, the kind of multifaceted human being that he was, that he can mm-hmm. be claimed by so many people. Right. Um, but what's interesting, so definitely he was a devout Muslim. I mean, Betty Shabazz, his wife, uh, may, Allah be, may Allah have mercy on her, I mean, says that, you know, make sure that the world knows that Malcolm was a devout Muslim and make sure that Malcolm's legacy or connection to Islam is also, and Muslims need to claim him. But then what happens is you got many Muslims who are non-black Muslims claim Malcolm and they do what they did to Martin. They they only focus on his last year of his life. Um, And they don't even focus in in an accurate way. They say that, Mm -hmm. you know, he almost quote unquote, dropped his radicalism no he never i mean he was like he was committed to anti-white supremacist stances right to the end of his mm-hmm. life you know and i think it's i think it's a disservice to to his legacy to take take that away from him i mean he was you know pro-black <laughs> and we have to say what it was he was pro-black and again pro-black doesn't mean anti anyone else it just means that you know his organizations which he set up he set up two um, before he passes away one for uh, a religious organization and one for just black people who are of any religion any creed so his commitment was to fighting injustice against the system 
The difference is, as you said a couple of minutes ago, he was no longer a separatist. Mm-hmm. He didn't believe in like, you know, getting a separate state for black people, but no, he, he considered himself a part of a global struggle against oppression. Um, so again, if you're going to paint a picture of Malcolm, I would say that it's, it's somewhere in what I just said. <laughs> it's right. amongst okay. that somewhere. Okay. Um, so you mentioned in your upbringing that you experienced a lot of racism. Um, you mentioned <laughs> quote unquote, the white boy. Um, yeah. And um now a lot of um, a lot of the things you speak about is anti-black uh, rhetoric in the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were growing up, did you experience any of that as well? Um, Say, so, okay, subtle. So you know how we have microaggressions? Right, right. It's the equivalent of that, but in the mosque. Mm. So what I mean by that is you'd have, um, I would be in the masjid and then someone will come over to me and say, Salam alaikum, brother. Alaikum salam. You know, I'm just minding, I'm just minding my own black business. And then you have uh, someone come up to me and say, can I teach you how to make wudu? I'm like, <laughs> and I'm just thinking to myself, nothing has, I mean, you see, you know, everyone else around me who's not black, most often than not, you haven't asked any of those people. So why have you t- taken it upon yourself to approach me and ask, can I help you to make wudu? So I'm like, oh, if the person's elderly, I'll be like, yeah, no worries. Thank you. I know, whatever. I won't take it offensively. But I know what they've done because they've seen me. And in their mind, they're thinking one of two things. Either I'm a new Muslim or that I don't know Islam properly. And I think that's a shame because just based on the way I look, whereas we know, you know I'm not going to go into it now, but those who know me will know my friend Mustafa Briggs. And you will know that he you know goes around the world teaching people about black mm-hmm. history um and we have a very rich legacy i mean there's no such thing as like this you know there's is no islam without black people basically right from the beginning of islam so as you can imagine or for example one day i walked into another mosque and it was like asar with my friend i was with my friend again his name is fahad he is pakistani and then one guy one man came over to us as we were like crossing paths and then he said to me, like he looked at my friends, shook my, shook my friend's hand and said, Salaamu Alaikum. And he just looked at me and he smiled and said, MashaAllah. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, are you thinking that, well, I'm, I'm, I'm an ex-hood man. This is why I've come to the mosque. Are you happy that I'm here? So again, it's like those microaggressions. As for the more overt stuff, I've not experienced it, but I've seen it online or I've seen it in video. So there's a imam in London and I used the, I think, I believe he's an imam. Yeah, he's a daddy or he's got some kind of position in a mosque. And, you know, there was a year, I think in 2018, there was a year in Ramadan, which there were several stabbings amongst Muslims. Mm. So in the first five or 10 days, several Muslims were killed by way of stabbing. There was an increase in gang violence and it kicked off in Ramadan. So... This scholar or da'i or whatever he is, he stood out in a very busy street in London, in Birmingham, sorry, and said, brothers, with a straight face, we are not black. Stop acting like you're black. Stop acting like you're black. We are good people. The same scholar said in a mosque that we need to stop acting as if we're Jamaican. We are not Jamaican. We are you know, we are, we are 
raised well. So again, that's like the anti-blackness that exists. And that's just one thing. Another thing would be, we've seen the clips always, uh, this hip hop looking brother reciting Quran. <laughs> yeah. You know, so again, you know, those things exist and those things speak to the anti-blackness that exists, unfortunately. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask about a, another phenomenon. I don't, I don't know if it exists in the UK, but um, in America, um, black Muslims, you know, that who come from Africa recently, you know, West Africa, Senegal, mm -hmm. Gambia, these, these countries, um, they come and then it's, it's almost as if there's a disconnect between the African-Americans that are, are already here and um, it's as if they're black and it's as if the Muslims from that recently came over from Africa, they're not black, right? So mm -hmm. they'll view them a certain way um, as if, you know, how Desi uncles kind of view them as well. It's if they're not, you know, and of course it's a multi-ethnic kind of community, but I, I find it interesting how, um, you know, races here will treat both of them the same way, pretty much. Yeah. And but one group doesn't really see it that way. Um, does that happen in the UK? I'm not really entirely sure. Um, yeah, it does because it's it's a it's a lot to unpack in the sense that mm -hmm. obviously that's, a, that's the legacy of um, white supremacy. Right. That's the legacy of colonialism. You know, divide and conquer, divide and divide and rule. But also as well, you have that people have brought in, unfortunately, in the black community, especially in the African immigrant community, mm -hmm. they brought into the idea of the model minority. The model minority meaning that, you know, this is the poster child for what can be achieved in America. Um, so, you know, and you have that, we know, I mean, I think that the most educated immigrant group in the United States, the Nigerian community. Mm. Um, and again, so people say, oh, how can that be racist? And if Nigerians can come over here and do it, well, again, there's so much, the histories are completely different. The Nigerians have come over, normally most often than not have come over like from middle-class backgrounds in, 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 um, in, in Nigeria. To even get a visa in the first place, you have to have be some kind of position or wealth most of the time. Then you have, um, so the wealth is different. The, the, the intentionality of coming to the States is different and the UK, they've come for education. More often than not, their parents are degree holders or engineers or have good jobs anyway. And we know the stats that if your parents have degrees, you're more often than not going to have a child that has degrees. Right. So again, my point is that the histories and the structural uh, narratives are different. So whereas, whereas you know, the African-Americans, how many years? It's been mm -hmm. generation upon generation. It's been centuries of destruction and, 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 and you know, uh, kind of destroying, destroying the, the families, not, not, not in like the conservative way, or it's the breakdown of black families, no. I mean, in the sense that, you know, there's been a concerted effort to keep certain people in certain positions. So I always say to people like, it's a shame that African immigrants and me being an African immigrant myself, I think it's, a I mean, I don't subscribe to that thinking at all, but I think it's a shame that people have adopted their thinking because if you look at, if you look at the UK context, for example, the Africans, that came at the same, because right now it's considered between the Africans and the Jamaicans. Mm -hmm. So you have the African immigrants sometimes look down on Jamaican immigrants or the Jamaican granddaughters and grandsons of those who immigrated. So you have like, oh, you know, they don't care about education. And you hear it, you hear it. But then if that were to be true, you find that the African immigrants that came at the same time, the Jamaican immigrants in, in um, in the Windrush era after post-World War II, they have the exact same experience, the mm. exact same educational attainment, 
the exact same uh, social economic uh, mobility prospect. So my point is that, okay, it's nothing to do with, you know, a cultural thing or one being more racist. It's got to do with the histories attached to the different people. Right. Okay. Um, so it seems like you've, you know, you've been talking about these issues since, you know, you were a teenager. Um, what got you, um, what got you to make the decision to really have uh, a public platform surrounding it? So like, you know, the Malcolm effect, um, prior to that, you had, uh, Baruka boys podcast with, you know, some mm-hmm. of the friends you just mentioned, Mustafa Briggs and your, um, your friend Fahad. Um, so w- w- what really got you to have that public image, um, eventually? I mean, it wasn't planned. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay. It wasn't planned. I didn't think mm-hmm. and say, yeah, how am I going to get loads of followers? And how no, no, gonna... of course not. Of course not. <laughs> no, I mean that genuinely. Like, it, it mm-hmm. wasn't planned. It was the Barracker Boys podcast was just, I mean, that was started on a whim. Mm-hmm. Some me and my friends were, went to Morocco and we genuinely had interesting, well, again, it's subjective. What I thought were interesting conversations. And we thought maybe other people might relate to, to this. Especially, especially young Muslims. Mm-hmm. We put that out there. It did really well. That kind of increased the following. And then, then yeah, I don't know. I feel like I didn't want to be in the Muslim scene, and I still don't want to okay. be in the Muslim scene. Um, so that was my kind of exit. I thought, you know what? There's loads of people out there who speak about Islam. There's loads of people out there who are scholars and da'is and ustad and ustad. And for me, it was like. Mm, I don't have the same passion for that anymore. I don't see myself mm-hmm. sitting in a mosque and teaching tajweed or teaching fiqh. I am, even though I'm passionate about it and I enjoy it myself, but I'm more interested in like the activism and political and politics at the moment. Um, okay. So then that kind of shifted. I kind of stopped talking about Islam. And as well, I think as a personal note, I didn't want to be a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be someone that talks about Islam and I'm not the most, what's the quote? Like, again, I think it's a false dichotomy, but people have an image of what it means to be practicing, mm-hmm. even though I don't subscribe to that image. But for me, it was like, mm, yeah, I'm not really that person. Um, so yeah, so, I, I, and then I kind of shifted out of that. I kind of sp- spoke more and more about race. Um, even though I've been speaking about these issues for quite some time, I would say since the passing of George Floyd, it kind of just took me in a whole new direction. Definitely. Um, especially I think like a couple of days ago, it was the one year anniversary. Yeah. Um, so you, um, you eventually made the choice to, um, direct your political activism and then go over to, uh, Egypt to study traditional sciences. Um, was that a choice that you're still continuing with? Um, cause you mentioned that you don't really want to like teach Islam yeah. in the traditional sense anymore. Um, is what's the reason for that exactly and um are what what is the plan now to do with the traditional knowledge that you have gained over the years (laughs) the traditional knowledge will be for myself okay and i still enjoy it i still i still enjoy it i still read the books i still uh still study as well but Mm -hmm. it won't be anything that's just like a personal passion of myself Mm -hmm. of my own um yeah, I mean, the plan now, I do want to pursue grad school in the States. Um, I'm trying to move to the States next year, hopefully. Um, I want to do a PhD in history and mm. black studies and become hopefully like a public academic intellectual. Okay. Okay, gotcha. Um, was that choice more recent? Because you, you did mention that um, you they kind of shifted in, in the past year or so, um, you know, past yeah, year or so, I mean, and then... Yeah, I mean, it, 
it wasn't it was brewing in my mind for quite some time okay. I thought I thought to myself mm, do I really see myself being a, a scholar in a masjid I don't mm-hmm. I have I, I, I'm too lit for that. Um, <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I just didn't. I mean, I, you know, you sit amongst a lot of Muslim circles, uh, especially students of knowledge. And if I'm honest with you, I'm glad that they they have a passion, but the level of conversation I found in those circles were just not inspiring for me. Mm, okay. So I mean, I thought I think one of the, the kind of final nail that kind of in the coffin that kind of took me out was when I believe it was last year, so 2020, and on the group, they were talking about, like, can a woman leave the house without husband's permission? Mm-hmm. And they were talking about, like, can women travel this? Or is music haram? And I thought to myself, like, I, and, then, and then I contrasted that to the, the activism scene that I'm in. And we're talking about, okay, where do we locate liberation? Is liberation in the, can we, can we come up with a new ontological perspective of man? And, you know, um, what is personal versus existential freedom? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, you know, what, how can we, the, is historical dialectical uh, materialism, which is obviously Marx, Karl Marx playing on Hegel dialectics, is that still relevant? And I'm thinking like, Damn, like this is the conversations I want to be having. And then and literally simultaneously, I think it was like this, I think that was like the same day. It was like at the same time, I was in two WhatsApp groups, kind of in and out. And one was talking about, you know, can a woman leave the house without husband permission? One was talking about, oh, um, can a woman taste the food in Ramadan? And the answer was, if the husband's a tyrant and he and he and he might uh, beat her up. One was talking about like astaghfirullah, like women can't refuse her husband's sex and and just weird like like i mean i know you're going to go into the, mm-hmm. the disconnect between scholars and i'm ready yeah. to mm-hmm. speak about that but again that was like my disconnect and then at the same time simultaneously i'm having conversations about like liberation and freedom and liberation theology and you know uh, the new understanding of man and uh, capitalism and racial capitalism i'm just like yeah i'm sorry man mm-hmm. and, and you know this all too well that's not to say i think that i have to be fair there are amazing Muslim academics. There are amazing Muslim academics who, but the problem is those are not the ones who are studying quote unquote traditional. Mm-hmm. And those are not the ones who are seen as traditional scholars. They're seen as academics, but the students of knowledge scene is pretty much the same. And there's no independent thinking. There's no independent reasoning. So I thought, yeah, I'm done with that. Right. Okay. Um, a few episodes ago, I had um, Cyrus McGoldrick who, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's um he's currently doing his PhD in Turkey, and he basically spoke about this exact thing where there was uh, there there seems to be a divide between like political activism and you know traditional sacred knowledge, um, and we kind of just spoke about like where it stems from because obviously we have a history of you know activism, um, Imam Hassan being one of the greatest examples, um, yeah. but w- what are your ideas, um? Uh, regarding like where that disconnect came from exactly um i think it comes from uh, so many reasons i think there's insecurity mm-hmm. from a lot of these scholars i feel there is a a lack of willingness to engage with the times in which we're in because i have no issue for example i'm not someone that's like ideologically committed to a way and i can't be budged but convince me. 
and and the scholars what i find is that they're condemning a lot of the activism circles saying you lot are marxists and you lot are this and you know and and time and time again these daddies and these scholars have no idea what they're talking about like absolute no idea mm -hmm. they sound like you know a lot of these um republicans or a lot of these uh right-wing folk or right-wing adjacent folk in america talk about critical race theory right and then you know that's exactly how the scholars sound when they speak about marxism <laughs> so so that disconnect and let's be honest let's be honest a lot of disconnect as well is you would think you if you were to speak to Muslims, Muslim scholars, you would think that the number one existential threat to Islam is the LGBT movement. That's what you'd think. Yeah, you, that's what you'd, yeah, you'd, yeah. you would feel like, you, I'm like, it's not that deep. I promise you it's not. Like, I promise you, you've had gay people uh, in Islam, sorry, in, uh, in the history of Islam for, since forever. And it's not an agenda. It's not a, uh, it's a movement that's got a lot of traction right now. Yes, it does. It's in your face. Cool. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel like, and then, and then what happens though, because these scholars uh, are not radical and they're reactionary, they believe that to combat against the left, we must align ourselves with the right. Right. Notwithstanding the right is more often not racist, xenophobic, but it's like, no, no, no. At least the right has conservative values. Mm -hmm. And Islam is somehow more aligned with those conservative thinking. And I feel that's ridiculous because the right, the right is not conservative values. The right has been shaped by, you know, capitalism. And we can speak about that further. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I think that's what disconnect comes from. And then, you know, it's like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So a lot of these scholars have tried to um, make their friends on the right wing of politics. But then what happens then is they further then alienate those on the left. Because again, it's like this, when you're speaking about politics, you're gonna have, if as a Muslim, I think you have two, you have two choices. You can either align with people who are doing the work that you're doing and they agree with you on, on certain principles, or you can start your own thing. I have no issue. I would love to see how Muslim activism should be done. I would love to see that, mm -hmm. but there's nothing. There's nothing, there's no scholars putting out a Muslim activism guide. It's just, oh, don't be with those people. When okay, then, then do what? Yeah, um, and I think one of the most glaring examples, like previous, you just mentioned George Floyd's murder, was mm -hmm. how before even condemning his death, they were talking mm -hmm. about the riots, right? Especially in New York. Um, and me personally, my dad's store was, you know, looted and it was, oh. we had to pay like hundreds of thousands in damages. Oh. Um, and, you know, me personally, I, I know the greater cost, right? Yeah. But a lot of our older generation, they may see that and now they have, you know, a greater um, hesitancy to join that type of movement. Mm -hmm. And then that prevents further education. Um, but what compounds to that is the fact that scholars themselves they're not trying to educate the masses they're trying to just redirect the energy to know the rioting shouldn't happen why are you protesting um you know why are you burning things down and um it's it just became two-sided like i think that's one of the most glaring examples where i remember um like it just became like like it was either one side or the other you were either like with traditional islam or you were with um 
the activist scene and yeah yeah it just didn't seem like they meshed together for for a lot of people so then they have to make that choice and it's just it's just very complicated yeah i mean end of the day it's not for me it's not very complicated right yes (laughs) for me it's not very many it's not completely honest no for many it might be complicated because they see oh what's happening but again the majority the largest muslim group in the u.s is the black muslims yeah for sure you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. again, that should be the, the the people you're standing up for. And and whether we like it or not, a lot of the freedoms that non-black Muslims enjoy in terms of like being mm-hmm. able to be visibly Muslim was because of the struggle that black Muslims took on. Definitely. You know, but that's not mm-hmm. that's that history is not taught. So I understand, I understand why the disconnect there, there is that disconnect. And let's be honest, I mean, you have to, this is why I, I'm I wouldn't call myself a Marxist, but I do have mm-hmm. a Marxist lens in analysis. A lot of desis are middle class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and not just, let's not even talk about the, the, the desis now in the States. Talk about the patterns of migration from Pakistan and India. The, for example, we know in the UK, the patterns of migration were working class people. They came as laborers, as uh, people to work in factories. So we have a working class uh, cohort of people. Whereas in desis in, in the States, came as doctors, lawyers, engineers for the most part not everyone but for the most mm-hmm. part for i'm not most- sure if i'm not sure if that's for bengalis per se yes, but no, I, no, do, Bengali, I, yeah, I do say sorry, for like indians definitely. And indians yeah definitely pakistanis and indians um mm-hmm. but again a lot of time they came from a different socioeconomic background i mean the bengalis are the same in the uk they're like the lowest as well mm-hmm. in the uk as well um but what i mean i mean to to, to be specific right, right. I, I get your point mm-hmm. yeah so naturally you have to understand, this is what I have my, my little, my, my Marxist lens. When you have certain material interests that mm. shapes your politics, <laughs> yeah. you want tax breaks, you want lower taxes, and the party to offer lower taxes is the Republicans. Mm-hmm. You, want, you want to be tough on crime. Why? Because unfortunately, like you, you said, your dad's, um, like your dad's shop got looted now, yeah? yeah? And you can be honest with me. <laughs> I don't think your dad's going to vote for defunding the police. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, you're not gonna definitely. vote for defunding the police yeah <laughs> you know what i mean even though we know for a fact that with police even with policing budgets being full or even inflated that wouldn't that wouldn't have prevented that happening mm. you know we know that we know that for a fact um but at the same time because of we've been brought in you know please keep our streets safe and you know, police are important and all the other things again your socioeconomic background, which means your material interests, guide your politics. So that's why that's why it's not shocking to me with people who are Muslim from certain backgrounds, be they white or be they uh, Pakistani, Indian, or middle class in general, have certain politics. It doesn't surprise Definitely. me. Definitely. Okay. Um, so you did mention that you you have a lot of uh, Marxist ideas, or or you you've studied it a lot um a, lo- a lot of um scholars would say that um any of these isms um and you can yeah. choose whatever ism right um that does not correlate with islam whatsoever um yeah <laughs> so what's yeah what, what are your thoughts on that again i just want them to read <laughs> i mean the thing at the end of the day many black muslims adopted mm-hmm. a Marxist, and i think as well i think Again, all I would say to those people, and please, Shaquille, if mm-hmm. you have to promise me, if you ever get a, a scholar 
that calls Marxism like kufr or not compatible with Islam, Islam. Just please ask them to define it. <laughs> just ask them okay. to define it. That's all you have to right. do is ask them to define it. Because yes, if you yes, there there is an antagonistic relationship between Marxism and religion. Yes, mm-hmm. there is. And if you um, reject the Marxism determinism, for example, as in like you know. Uh, how they view human beings, how they view human history. Yeah, we can disagree on that. Mm-hmm. But again, it's like <clears throat> two things now. Either you can use his critique of capitalism, which is the best we've had since, since we have, is the best cap- critique of capitalism we have, or you can adopt and make and create a new one from based on Muslim principles. I have no issue with that, but you haven't done either. All you've just done is call it a kufr. Right. Um, so again, that's why, again, I don't, I, and I think as well, for me, it's not about, that's why I don't like pull it in my bio. I don't introduce myself as that. It's not that deep to me. I mean, mm-hmm. these people, it's not a religion. It's not a madhab. Right. It's literally just a lens of critique in which I use. And there's several lenses. Mm-hmm. There's a Marxist lens. There's a, there's, as I'm going to go into the critical race theory lens. It's just lenses that help you understand the world in which you're in. That's Definitely. It. So the, the main thing that everyone kind of brings up regarding Marxism is the history of the Soviet Union, right? Russia, mm-hmm. the amount of debts, due to the famines, um, yeah. how they suppressed uh, religious communities, especially the Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, th- I think that's what they bring up rather than the actual I- ideology of it or like the ideas coming from yeah. Marxism. Good. So I think, again, I, I think, again, it's just intellectual dishonesty because right. in, our, in our lifetime, we have one million dead Iraqis by George Bush. Mm-hmm. In our life, and he's, he's a super capitalist. In our lifetime, in our in Churchill, uh, organized a famine of three million Bengalis. Mm-hmm. Slavery was capitalism. <laughs> Slavery was actually capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, what the Haitian Revolution was a revolt against uh, capitalism. So again, it's like okay, and this is not about whataboutism. We can talk about what happened in the Soviet Union. We can talk right. about the failures which they did, and we can talk about the good things they did. Yeah, we can talk. We can have that conversation. But again, that's not that's not in the ideology itself. That's just how it played out, in, in, unfortunately. Whereas I would say capitalism by necessity requires exploitation. Okay. It requires exploitation. It requires people to be on the bottom. It, it requires certain people to have their labor expropriated to, for it to function. Colonialism, what is that? Neocolonialism that happens right now by way of imperialism, by way of American corporations is literally like, I'm, I don't know for what phone you have. I have an iPhone. Yes. Me having an iPhone. Mm-hmm. You have an iPhone. Mm-hmm. Us having an iPhone means that a poor young woman, a poor young girl or boy in Congo had to mine for cobalt mm-hmm. for our phone. So again, I, find, I just find it a bit of a bit of intellectual dishonesty personally when we talk about like, okay, yes, we can talk about. I mean, for me, what happened in the Soviet Union? Again, it depends which period you're talking about. Let's say Lenin's time or. And the reason why I think those things are quite inspirational because it was an uprising of peasants. Mm-hmm. It wasn't people that, like, it wasn't uh, the uprising in industrial states. It was an uprising of, of people who were like poor people, not very organized, and they overthrew the superstructure of the day. And that's, that's mm-hmm. always going to be an inspiration for me. And as well, it's like, again, at that time, we're talking about industrialization. Mm-hmm. how can a country industrialize itself you have to industrialize to keep up with the time you're in the west industrializes off slavery britain becomes a powerhouse that it becomes because of slave trade mm-hmm. 
which saw how many, which was a genocide on black people. And then, and then it continues to industrialize and, 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 and expropriate wealth by exploiting Africa today. That's, that's all of Europe and that's, the, and that's all of uh, America, Europe and the West today, still today. So again, I feel like, again, I think we have to have an honest conversation about what happened. We can talk about the failing. I'm not a fan of like Stalin, for example, I'm not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not like a sycophant of these people. Like, oh my God, I have to worship these people or I have to defend it. No, I don't. I, don't. I think, okay, for example, Lenin, I find inspiration in some things he said and in, in, in some things he did. And he made mistakes. He's not perfect. But again, I think one thing we have to contend with, and this is what I find people don't contend with, we have to ask ourselves why so many black revolutionaries took up Marxism. And, and, and as well, if we look at the Soviet Union during the 20th century, they was like they backed black people. Mm-hmm. They spoke in favor of the black struggle in America. So again, that's that's why those people chose that side. Whereas you got people, so again, who are you gonna be with? You're gonna be with people who are backing you or people who are oppressing you. I think it's an easy decision to make. Definitely. So would you say that capitalism now, because you've mentioned so many examples of why capitalism is um, is wrong, obviously. Um, so would you say capitalism is the actual greatest enemy to not only Muslims, but everyone in humanity, pretty much? 100%. Okay. 100%. I think capitalism is the, but again, I think let's not be reductionist. Right. When I mean capitalism, I mean in all its manifestations. Mm-hmm. So I mean capitalism by, like, again, it's like Kwame Ture says that if a man, if a white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. Right. If he has the power to lynch me, then that's my problem. And capitalism gives him that power. So again, it's like, for me, I'll be honest with you, I'm not interested in people. Like, if you're racist in your corner, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> like, you, you don't like black people. Okay, that's nice for you. Right. But if you have the ability to act on your prejudice, that's problematic for me. And that system that allows that is a system of capitalism. So again, that's why, and then again, the global, the global South or in Africa today, <clears throat> in Zambia, people are mining for copper, um, Switzerland, Nestle, we know how they expropriate labor, the sweatshop factories. In India, 700 million people a day go about food. Mm-hmm. And that's a capitalist country. You see what I mean? So again, it's like, if you talk about suffering in the world, and again, I don't want to be reductionist and say like, oh, once capitalism over, the world will be perfect. No, it's not true. Right. It's not true. I don't believe liberation or freedom is solely found in the material. Anyway, I'm Muslim. I believe there's spiritual aspects to freedom. I believe there's uh, spiritual aspects. There's obviously material aspects, there's political aspects. These things are all come together. But I'm thinking like in the immediate time, mm-hmm. we can deal with capitalism. We can deal and attack that on the front and we can get unified in that attack. Definitely. Okay. Um, would you say that, because um, obviously capitalism and ha- has been here for so long, slavery was, it was there for, you know, hundreds of years before it was finally abolished everywhere else. Um, and of course, it still exists in other parts of the world. Um, but would you say that um, this political activism, because this is, again, another critique that many scholars have, um, is activism even effective, really, if it's not done the proper way, quote unquote? Um, and if it if it isn't, then what is the? Well, they would say it, it's not, but from their lens, it's pretty much why why bother, right? Why not just mm-hmm. stick to my dua and my salah and then get those things right? 
again, I'll say, I think, I think it's quite interesting to be a Muslim saying that when we look at the prophets examples mm-hmm. and not just our, not just the prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings sure, be upon him. Sure. When we look at the prophets, what was Musa in the house of Pharaoh, <laughs> you know, can, and, and Bani Israel. They look- use, they use the example of, uh, when you speak to Pharaoh, speak softly. <laughs> so use, they, they use that example. <laughs> they use that example. But again, for me, every, every, most of the prophets were count, were anti-culture. They were mm-hmm. counterculture. They were revolutionaries in their time because they were the right. minority going against the majority. So again, it's like, I, I find it, I just find, I mean, the thing is, I would say to people, okay, I can't swear, can I? Um, I'll say to people, if you're just scared, just say that. Okay. <laughs> if people are scared, just say that. Don't, don't like God be, uh, dress it up in like, oh no, it's the proper thing to do and make dua. No, if you don't want to be on the streets, and you're scared just say that that's okay and that's okay <laughs> not everyone's built like that but i think to kind of garb it up and say it's not effective it is effective have things changed of course have reforms been made of course throughout history i mean the only the, the unfortunate thing is that history has told us that change only takes place when when it's most of the time through violent means right that, that's what history teaches us and then through peaceful means you get you might get a new legislation here or there but then is it enforced? Probably not. Um, but I, th- I think we should never underestimate the role activism has in shifting public opinion. I mean, right now, as we speak on the 29th of May, we've seen what's happening in Palestine and Gaza. Definitely. Can we, can we not say that the shift has changed in public opinion? Mm-hmm. Like openly in the Congress of the United States, they're calling Israel an apartheid state. Mm-hmm. I mean, last week we had 200,000 people march in UK, in, in the UK streets. Yeah. It's like, that has, that, that has an effect. Look, mm-hmm. Ireland now has now recognized the illegal occupation and said, when I'm, I'm, it's considering sanctioning Israel. Most countries now back, I think it was the US vetoed it, but most countries back, back to ceasefire that was going to be enforced. So again, like I have to understand Activism, what the role of activism is, obviously you can organize locally, but what it does is that is to put pressure on those in power to shift their opinions, to shift them and to move them to certain positions. And mm-hmm. I think that has been effective. I mean, right yeah. now, like George Floyd's death, like right now, people are calling it the global reckoning on race since that point. And it has been that and it's continuing. Definitely. Um, so I, I do want to move the conversation um because you've just mentioned it so many times uh critical race theory um which seems to be a very divisive topic um, <laughs> depending on who you talk to right um so correct me if i'm wrong but critical race theory it seems to be the framework of how every system in place currently or at least in the west is racialized and mm-hmm. it is built to uh, suppress, um, you know, black people and and other, other communities through socioeconomic um, disparities and mm-hmm. um, political disparities. Would that be an accurate definition? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's, it's a discipline, and again, it's a lens. Okay. So, in the sense that it's born out of critical legal studies, right? And it's. Basically, this fundamental question that critical race theory attempts to answer is why is it after 
years of civil rights movement and legislation after legislation, why are we still reproducing the same amount of disparities based on race in our country, in the mm -hmm. States? So what it says is that it's trying to answer those questions. Why is it in our institutions we still see the same level of disparity, racialized disparity, black, brown, and white? Why is it still the case? So it seeks to address and understand that. And with that comes with a certain few presuppositions that they, they're going to accept as just given facts. The, the one of the given facts is that the country is racist. The institutions are racist. So we're not we're yeah. not going to have you know we're not, we're not going to have that discussion of you know even till today we have this debate. Is the UK race? I'm thinking. Oh, God, are you not tired yet? Like how many times do we have to like report after report after report? Like we see in the UK, you're more likely to die from COVID if you're an ethnic minority, yeah. you know, less, less likely to get a job, less likely to get a promotion, less likely to, uh, more likely to be stopped and searched, more likely to have police force used on you. Like at which point, I mean, again, so again, it's like the other day, Joe Biden says America is not a racist country. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I, I, I would, again, all these people say that these countries are not racist, but I'd like to know, okay, which point did no longer become racist? That's what I want to know. Because it definitely was a time it was racist. I mean, the constitution that, that, that taught that black people were three-fifths of a human being, <laughs> that was a racist, that was, that was the country's founding document. So my question is, okay, then at which point did not become racist then? And they yeah. can't answer that question. It's not divisive. It's because what it's because it's been taken by the right and weaponized to say it's teaching that white people are all evil. It's teaching that all white people are bad and have privilege. And eh, it doesn't teach that. It doesn't like I, I, again. It, but again, as always, the language of race can always be weaponized, and that's what the right has done today. But yeah, that's Definitely. like a short version of that. People can read the works of Derek Bell and many critical race theories to theorists today about defining what it is and what it seeks to do. Definitely. And uh, so I, I work in healthcare. I'm, I'm wearing scrubs right now to go to work like literally. Oh, really? What are you? What do you do? So I'm, I'm a nursing student. Um, oh. I have one more year left. And um, on, on weekends, I work at an urgent care. I don't know if you have those in the UK, but urgent cares are basically like uh, you're quick in and out. You have a fever. You don't want to go to your GP. Okay. You just go there. Um, you do COVID tests. You know the vaccines are also there. Um, okay. Yeah, quick in and out. Physicals as well. So, pretty much, um, we took a couple of courses on this. You know, health policy and whatnot. We go through some of the histories, and you know, you just look at our own histories. It's one of the most supposedly humane industries, right? Healthcare. Yeah. You're supposed to treat people, save lives. Um, you have things like the Tuskegee experiments, you have things, yeah. um, you know, so many examples where black people have been subjected to experiments or, or suppressed for I mean, even supposedly today, greater good. Find yeah, that, find that um, it's still believed in, me in the medical profession that black people have a higher pain threshold. Yeah, yeah. If you're black, you're less likely to receive mm -hmm. certain pain medications. And that's wild. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, black mothers are more likely to die from childbirth. childbirth. Than, yeah, yeah. And uh, like you said, it's it has it has to do with the with the structures, right? So a, a lot of these hospitals, um, if if you kind of go at it from a, a macro scale, a lot of these mm -hmm. hospitals where you know black mothers are dying, they're in poor neighborhoods just because of the socioeconomic disparities that have been existing for centuries. And those hospitals don't have the proper resources. The staff may be um, not fully trained and they may be 
um, understaffed even. And, and, and so there's just so many factors where it's just not like, you know, one thing it's not like, Oh, it's a, it's a bad nurse that did it. It's just the whole thing is it's racist. Right. And I think, um, I think what people really misunderstand this. Yeah. Structural racism is not about the individual. Yeah. If a black police officer shoots a black man, that's still structural racism. Mm-hmm. That is still because the, the reason that the man has become in contact with the police is a set of circumstances that has led to that moment to happen. Mm-hmm. That is stru- structural racism. Even if, a, if let's say a man is selling loose cigarettes, let's say the issue of Eric Garner, for example, mm-hmm. let's say he was choked out by a black man, let's say he was, um, that will still be an example of structural racism because him having to sell cigarettes is because of maybe his poverty, which is an issue of, which is engineered, poverty is engineered, um, right. unemployment is engineered, uh, maybe a criminal record, he's thinking not to say Eric Garner, but people in general. All those, all those circumstances and events that led you to be in encountering with the police, be they white, black or brown, is a set of circumstances that are engineered and born out of structural racism. Right. So I think people, and again, this is why, and this is, this is again, I'm going to sound like a broken record, why I adopt a material analysis lens, because I don't care about the interpersonal racism. I, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't have that much effect on you. Mm-hmm. You have to attack the structures. Gotcha. Okay. So I know, especially with critical race theory, there's, um, I, don't, I don't know if it's a huge voice in the Muslim community, but I've seen like papers here and there kind of deconstructing it. Yeah, or, or refuting it. Um, I haven't really read much of it just because it's a bit long. Um, but w- what are the exact arguments against the against critical race theory? Uh, the usual stuff, man. It was uh, it's Marxist leaning. It's got non-Muslim uh, fundamental understandings of human human being of the human being. It teaches that all white people are bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then, then they go, oh, it's pushed by queer people, and it's just not like. Mm. I, again, I would love, and again, my challenge against scholars, fine, you don't like critical race theory, fine, produce something that you believe is a halal alternative to understanding how race plays out in institutions today. That's what I would say then. Mm-hmm. But no, you don't do that. But then you just criticize it. So what's the what should we do? Definitely. Okay. And um, this, so I just want to wrap up just because I know we've gone for, for a while. Um, but this, this question is, is more of just like a bonus question just out of curiosity. Um, so you said you studied in Markazi Malik, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I have a couple, not of friends, but acquaintances that have also studied there. And um, so you adopted the Maliki Madhub, I'm assuming, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so <laughs> this might be a bit controversial, but scholars um, that we may have looked up to within the Maliki Madhub, especially prominent ones in the U.S. and whatnot, um, such as Tamsi Yusuf, I, I, I'm like, I'm like, he's I been, like, yeah. Just say the name. Like. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. So, because Tamsi Yusuf, especially to me and a lot of my friends, he's been a huge influence. Yeah, same. Yeah, but in recent years, his politics just doesn't, crack up the code right it's so politics is not, it's not politicking but right it's okay. <laughs> um I, I don't know if you can answer this but it seems like scholars who you know have that sufi leaning methodology um him abdullah bin Baya maybe and 
I'm not sure about Imam Zichakir, but um, and then Ibn Hamid Ali, um, they they have these you know Sufi ideology going on. Um, what what would you say is the reason for why a lot of these scholars are not really, you know, taking? I don't know if it's the correct stance, but um, they're they're not really you know going towards like activism or, or actually speaking against injustice and they're kind of just making like really weird alliances i, I think I, you've mentioned so many different people so i think it's difficult mm-hmm. to put yeah right, right. i know um bimbeya he's he was a politician for quite some time he's an amazing scholar but obviously he has his alignments with certain governments because he, he has mm-hmm. to get, get funding hamza yusuf again he's a middle-class white man um mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 I think that becoming a Muslim doesn't remove you from that. Um, mm-hmm. So he has a certain way of viewing the world, and he believes in that whole liberal understanding of conservative conservatism. He believes in mm-hmm. that. So he, the people like I mean, you saw he's gonna be with um, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson coming, yeah. I think August the fifth. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not shocked. That's like the most natural progression of Hamza Yusuf to come. Hamza Yusuf yeah. for me is like the Muslim Jordan Peterson. And that says a lot. I think Jordan Peterson is uh, a, a racist, white supremacist. Um, I believe that. Hamza Yusuf, do I believe he's a white supremacist? Probably not. Do I believe that he has very problematic views on race? Absolutely. Because when he, mm-hmm. I mean, there is, the, and the, I, can, I think it's very interesting because I still recommend Hamza Yusuf to people. Yeah. He's, like he's amazing. When, like when, when, um, when, Mm, okay. I, I don't know about that, but I'm not when, gonna, it comes, when it comes your to your opinion, isn't it? As your opinion. So, so yeah. Karen? So I, I just wanted to mention that um when it comes to like getting people involved in the spiritual aspect of Islam, he's one of the best go-tos in, in my yeah. opinion. I, I think you know what it is. If people come to me and want to get back on the dean, or they want mm. to learn a new like, have a an understanding of Islam which is not as harsh or whatever, of course. Purification of the Heart series, great. Mm-hmm. Introduction to Maliki Fiqh series, great. Those those series and talks with the annoying Nasheed in the background, great. <laughs> like, that's not a problem. But, like, that's it for me, Hamza Yusuf. I don't take mm-hmm. his view on the world. I don't take his view on politics. I don't take his view on, on activism or a race, anything like that. And I would advise people against that. Definitely. Okay. Um, so that that was that was pretty much it. Um Jazakallah so Khair Mamadou for, for being on. Um so do you have anything to shout out? Where can they find you? Um the Malcolm um, Effect, where, where can you listen to that? Yeah, please subscribe to the Malcolm Effect on mainly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And then hit me on Twitter, Mamadou Tal, and then also on Instagram, the Gambia. Amazing, amazing. So yeah. you heard it here. Um Jazakallah Khair Mamadou for being on. And I know the viewers are definitely going to check you out because you said so many gems in this past um, hour or so. Um, and yeah, so take care. Have a nice day. Also, I just realized I forgot to say the dua at the end. So, subhanakallahumma bihamdika wa nashadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. Peace, guys. See you guys next week.